Thank you, dear Bia. Such an honor for me to be with you this morning. Um, I want to say I want to, I'm going to share something from Re- Revelation f- Revelation five, and then I'll introduce myself, and then then we'll begin. When you know Leland has the song "Lion and the Lamb," Lion and the Lamb. And somehow in our minds, Jesus is a, li- is a lamb and then he's a lion. But it's very interesting, if you read Revelation 5, the angel calls John up, and he has the scroll, nobody can open the scroll, and John is, well, who can open the scroll? And then the angel said to him, look here, weep no more, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah. The root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seas. Now pay attention to what John sees. He doesn't see a lion. He says, And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. Jesus does not suffer as a lamb and then become a lion and devour everyone. Jesus does not suffer and then become an all-powerful ruler, and in that way receive his kingdom. Jesus suffers as the lamb, is slain, and in that process, somehow, God redeems the world. And in the same way as we think about suffering today, suffering is not something that I go go through so that I can move up in life. I don't embrace suffering today so that next week God can appoint me to some higher position. Suffering is not the stepping stone to greatness. Henry Nouwen says that the Christian life is not one of upward mobility where we move from strength to strength, from height to height, from position to position, but it is one of downward mobility into service. And as we progress in the Christian life, we just become lower and lower, and we actually just suffer more and more. Because we just learn to love more and more. And love will always be sacrificial. And it will always cost you the things that you do not want to give. And there is, in fact, nothing for you to gain from true love. Because if I give my life to my children, I gain nothing. I lose everything that I wanted to do. But the kingdom manifests itself in those spaces. Anyway, here we go. I have many things to say. Um, Unfortunately, my wife keeps telling me too much. She says, France, only three quotes. Three quotes is your limit. I said, well, I think I have five and another four in my pocket. So we'll we'll see how far we get. I don't know. Are we time sensitive? Not, Not really. That's the way I like it means we can just go until we are done. You know, you can always go back and listen to the recording if there are things that we didn't spend enough time on. Um, but I'll introduce myself first. So my name is Franz Yuan Pinar. I've dropped the Yuan since I moved to the US because, you know, I'm also not France, I'm France. Because you say France and then I'll call it. So, and my wife's marionette, <laughs> because, you know, in some ways you just have to speak so people can understand you. So I am South African, obviously. Uh, met my wife when I was studying at the University of Stellenbosch. Moved to Stellenbosch in 2012, did become financial management, as Debbie said, and received the call there and met my wife there. And it was an extraordinary experience for me coming to the Lord on 29th of June 2012 in Shofar Stellenbosch. Totally crazy moment. I texted some random guy I met in the beginning of the year and, I don't know, had leave of my senses and told him, take me to church. Um, and he took me to Shofar. And I don't remember the, the sermons he has preached. 
But all I remember is my heart was doing this. And Sears did an altar call, and I responded that day. And um, It was an incredible time, an incredible formational time for us. Um, so Shofar definitely has a very special place in our hearts, and we are so grateful uh, to be here with you. So then we moved to the United States, just four bags, some golf clubs and a guitar, to a strange land. Um, but it's been an incredible time. Uh, my wife and I had the privilege both to study there, both did a Master of Divinity there. Um, and, uh, you know, my book really is the product of the suffering that I had to endure under Corneille. <laughs> you know, everybody sits here, you know, all big eyes, and, oh, I wish I could do that. Well, the stripes on my back may convince you otherwise. He is quite unforgiving in an academic setting, but I'm all, all the better for it. So we've had just had an incredible time. The Lord has been so good to us. Um, and as you mentioned, I hope to be done with my PhD soon. Uh, fortunately and unfortunately, Corneille is the chair of that as well. So we'll, I hope to be done. With that, as I mentioned, I have two kids. Max is three and a half. Alex just turned two a couple of weeks ago. Um, so we're just incredibly blessed. We're grateful to be in South Africa on a holiday. Um, and it's incredible when Diebia asked me to come here. Like, it's just incredible to see how the Lord orchestrated all of this. The Lord starts speak to him last year to preach about suffering. He clears it with the elders. They picked the month of June to speak about suffering. And at that point, I didn't even have travel authorization from the US government to actually leave the country. When all of those decisions were being made, I was not actually allowed to be here. And yet here I am. So I'm very, very encouraged uh, by that. There's some photos. There you go, Max is down here, Alex is up there. They keep us busy and drive us crazy, but hopefully we can learn to love them. <laughs> uh, so um, you can go to the next slide. There we go. I've titled the sermon In Curvatus In Se, which is a Latin phrase for when we curve away from God to ourselves. How suffering exposes our true desires and what to do about it. The reality is suffering is actually not a good in itself. Suffering is only the context. It only creates the environment in which the good can emerge. Just because you are in pain in itself does nothing for you. If you can channel that pain in the right direction, good can emerge. I call, the title of my book is Called to Suffer. Because if you listen to Paul's words in Philippians 1, he says, For it has been granted to you a gift that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him but also suffer for his sake. Being able to give our lives for Jesus is a gift. And it's a gift for the world. Jesus is the lamb who was slain, and it is his body that is the healing of the nations. But as his body is given, the healing goes forward. And it's as we learn to give of ourselves that our world will be healed. So my sermon has three parts. We're going to speak just briefly. I'm going to give a little bit of an overview of my book about suffering, where it's from, what does it do? And then I want to move on and I want to ask some deeper questions. I want to go two steps beyond what I would have done in my book if it was a little bit longer. Is I want to ask a question about why do we gravitate away from suffering? If suffering is indeed good news, why don't we embrace it? And then the final section of the sermon will deal with what... Is suffering actually designed to produce in our lives? And what will heal our worlds? 
So three types of suffering. I don't actually, I can't actually see the slides here, so I don't know what's going on behind me. Um, but there are three, three types of suffering which I speak about in my book. I know Debbie had 10. <laughs> definitely, definitely showed me up there. I was like, wow, 10, Debbie, that's amazing. Uh, I, have to, I have to say this. I did giggle when I listened to Debbie's sermon from two weeks ago in the car. And I knew what he was going to preach on, and then he starts in Revelation. He's like, oh, do you want to be holy? Do you want to know Jesus? Do you want to be like him? Look at this vision of Revelation. Everything is great. Uh, suffering. <laughs> I'm just giggling there because I'm like, good job, yeah, yeah. There you go. Lead them. Call that the, call, <laughs> call that the bait and switch. <laughs> but there we go. So there are three types of suffering which I speak about in my book. The first one is suffering for being stupid. Okay? you're stupid and you suffer, sorry for you. Don't blame God. Don't blame the devil. Just blame yourself. And Peter speaks about this in 1 Peter 2. He says, if you suffer for doing evil, it's like, I don't know what to say to you. Just stop. Okay? Just stop. And there are two types of suffering which we're going to see in the Old Testament. I'm just going to give quick examples. Uh, if you want to read the book, you can find an Ebook on the publisher's website for ten bucks, ten dollars. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> and for that ten dollars, I will receive like sixty cents. So, don't think you're making me rich by buying the book. Um, so, suffering from being stupid, and there is punitive suffering. And we're going to see this in Psalm. There we go. It's up there. In Psalm thirty-eight. The psalmist says, he says, O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath, for your arrows have sunk deep into me. Your hand has come down on me. There is no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation, God's anger. There is no health in my bones because of my sin. For my iniquities have gone over my head like a heavy burden that is too heavy for me. There is this theme in the Old Testament in which when God's people turn away from him, suffering is the means to bring correction. Even the exile, if you read the prophetic literature in Jeremiah and Isaiah, what you see is that God says, well, you're going to go into exile, but this exile is actually going to be the means for restoration for you to return to me. He says, because you will go there and then you will cry out to me and I will deliver you. And so a lot of times the storms that we encounter in our lives is because we haven't listened properly, because we haven't been doing what we're supposed to be doing, and then God uses suffering to bring us back. The second, the third type of suffering that I deal with is called probative or purgative suffering, suffering that is used to purify. In Psalm 66, we read, for you, O God, have tested us, you have tried us as silver is tried, you brought us into the net, you laid a crushing burden on our backs. You let men ride over our heads. We went through fire and through water, yet you have brought us out to a place of abundance. There's no mention of sin, no mention of transgression. It is a trial, a suffering that God has allowed to happen here, that God has sent. Look at what the psalmist is saying. We're going to see this again in Genesis and Deuteronomy, is that it is God who is doing the testing. It's not someone else. It's not the devil running around and afflicting you and doing his own thing. This is God. God is the one who is testing you because God's desire is to bring purification. And he uses other people to ride over your head, which may be uncomfortable. And so the word for testing in, in First Peter that I look at Really, two, but the, the one main one is called perasmus, which means testing, or trial, or tribulation. And we're going to see these in the, in the Old Testament. I'm going to start there in Genesis 22. Again, speaking about where suffering comes from, people seem to have an incredible difficulty with the idea of ascribing any forms of suffering or difficulty to God himself. And so what you find in charismatic communities especially is because we can't blame God for the suffering, we have to find somebody to blame. So we blame the person. It's your fault. It's your sin. It's your lack of faith. 
you didn't do the right thing, and now this is happening to you. But the reality is, is that some of the storms in our lives are there because God sent them. Because God deems it necessary to test, to see, will we be faithful? Will we endure? Will we do that which he has asked us to do? And so we see in Genesis 22 verse 1, and it, it starts, and God tested Abraham. God calls Abraham. God gives him a promise. Abraham vacillates. He has the child with Sarah. And then God says, let me test. Let me test whether he will be faithful to me. God has already done everything that God said he would do. He's given him his offspring. But now God's like, let me test. And at the end of Genesis 22, when just before he's about to sacrifice his son, God says, now that I have seen that you will not even withhold your only son from me, now I will make your name great. We see the same thing in Deuteronomy 8. You see, and you shall remember the way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness. That he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart. Whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and he let you hunger and he fed you with manna which you did not know, nor did your fathers know them. That he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone. How do you want to know that God is your provider if you never have lack? How do you want to know that God is your deliverer if you've never had something to be delivered from? So we want to know God only up here in a conceptual world. But we don't want to know him in reality, because in rea to know him in reality means to enter into a space in which I'm actually in need. And so we live conceptual Christianity, and that's Christianity that we preach to people. Oh, God is love. Okay. But we are not willing to love them. God gave his son, but are you willing to give your time? And so we live in our conceptual worlds. And talking about the difficult things that God sends across our lives, the main question people always ask, oh, why is this happening? And people go through terrible things. I'm not making light of our suffering. I'm not making light of the things that people go through. But the reality is, is that we need a good dose of humility when it comes to viewing the, the suffering, the paths that God has called us to walk on. Because we can hardly predict the weather with relative accuracy in a week. Yet we want to tell God that this thing that's happening to me right now is actually not good for me. But we have no way of even comprehending what this situation, what I am going through now, what is the effect of this situation, of this suffering, of this thing that God has called me to do. What is the effect of this situation going to be 5, 10, 15 years from now? God can call you into a space, make one connection, and 15 years later that connection can open a door. Yet we're like, no, 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 God, you don't know. Why is this happening? We need to remind ourselves that God's vision is so much broader. It's so much further down the line. Old Testament scholar Tom Kaiser is at the Regent University. He speaks about Genesis 3 and he speaks about the original sin. And he says that primarily the original sin is the fact that Adam and Eve were not willing to trust that God had their best interests at heart. When God told them not to eat of the tree, the sin is not actually in the eating. The sin is in believing that God was holding out on them. And that's the sin we find ourselves in so many times when it comes to choices of obedience during difficult seasons is can we believe that God has our best interests in mind 
when he leads us down certain paths, when he allows certain things to happen in our lives. So in the Greek literature, you find uses of pyrosmos, you find two uses. The first is used to test, as we saw now in Genesis 22 and 8, and you test something. Test to see whether this person will obey. That's the usage that you find primarily in 1 Peter as well. However, in the book of James, you find a second usage of perosmos. And the second use of perosmos in the Greek literature refers to an internal desire which tempts you to be led astray. And so you see, in, and, and this is why it's so interesting, is when you read James, you're like, let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. Same word that we just saw in Deuteronomy, in Genesis, and in First Peter. It's perasmus. Let no one say when he is perasmus, I am being perasmus by God. But yet already in Genesis 22, we saw, well, and God perasmus Abraham. And so you see this second usage of internal desires, for God cannot be tempted with evil, himself tempts no one, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. And then desire, when it's conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. Desire here, erethia, is only used twice in the New Testament, in James 1 and James 3. And the only other time we find it in the classical Greek literature is in Aristotle. And Aristotle uses it to refer to the ambition that politicians have for office. It is an ambition to make one's own name great. It is an ambition to decide for ourselves what is in our own best interest. That is our greatest challenge, is moving beyond that which we think is in our own best interest and embracing what God has for us. So in 1 Peter 1, I'll show you this passage in 1 Peter and then, then we'll move on. It says, then this now you rejoice, though now for a little while the ESV up here will say, if necessary. The Greek there will be AD on Eston. And A can have two usages in Greek and can either be, it can either be a conditional statement, if necessary, or it can be a conditional of fact, which means since it is necessary. So, my book's called Called to Suffer, so you can imagine which one I opted for. But what's interesting is that scholars show that in the New Testament, when A is used, it's always used as a conditional fact. Especially when coupled with day, which means it is necessary. It's also the Greek word that the Greek literature uses to speak of fate. And so what we find here is Peter is saying that since it is necessary for you to endure these various trials for the purification of your faith so that the tested genuineness of your faith, which is more precious than gold, may result in the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Skip verse 8 and verse 9, it says, And you are obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. In Acts chapter 14, Paul says that it is through suffering that we must enter the kingdom. Same word. There is no other way. The way of following Jesus is the way of suffering. It's the way of downward mobility. It's the way of service. It's the way of death to what I want the way of transformation and the difficulties that God brings into my life 
are designed to shape my heart so that it can be pure. That all of the selfishness in my heart can be squeezed out. And it's always so fascinating when I speak to people about suffering. They're always very uncomfortable. Come to church to avoid suffering. Jesus, you know. Come to Jesus, your life will be better. Come to this altar call, all your financial troubles will go away. You'll have a better job. Find a husband. But in reality, we know that all transformation necessitates suffering. Whether it's in rugby or in sport or in mathematics, everything requires discipline. And the Christian life is no different. You cannot be a disciple of Jesus without discipline. If you cannot discipline yourself to follow Jesus, to do what he's asked of you to do, to submit yourself to the community, to read the word, to pray, you cannot expect to grow. And so suffering Joel Green, I think, that's up there. Oh, there we go. Joel Green says, testing comprises a crisis of decision, of faithfulness, of outcome, since it is at one and the same time the opportunity for the refiner's fire to carry out its work of purifying faith and the opportunity for diabolic forces to wrestle God's people away from their faith through temptation. So suffering creates a context. It creates an uncomfortable situation. It creates something which we do not like. And the reality is, is that both God and Satan have a plan for the suffering in your life. How you respond to the suffering in your life determines who wins. You can either press into God Ask him to purify you. Ask him to use this for his glory. Ask him to manifest the kingdom in your life through this situation. Or you can grow in resentment and Satan wins. How we respond determines who wins. One Peter 4. He says, Beloved, do not be surprised when these fiery trials come upon you. Like what? Don't be surprised. Because it's necessary. And then he says, Rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may be rejoice and be glad when he is revealed. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed. For the Spirit of God and of glory rests upon you. And in this session, somebody prayed this verse this morning. A big part of my dissertation is about this verse. There is a koinonia, there is a fellowship that happens when we share Christ's suffering. When we are willing to embrace slander because of the name of Jesus, there is a special fellowship that happens. In fact, Peter says it's the spirit of God and of glory that rests upon you in that moment. There is a dimension of God's character, there's a dimension of who God is that can only be revealed in the context of suffering. There is a fellowship with the Father that can only take place when we place ourselves in a space of suffering for His name. Sometimes we have to allow God to place us in difficult situations so that he can reveal his character to us. You have to step out in faith so that you can see that God is the rewarder of those who seek him in faith. I'll tell a short story. My wife said I should smile. Should smile. Tell a story, you know, it was, I was done with my master's, we're flying back home from the U.S. to visit for, for three months before I started my Ph.D. 
and I'm sitting on the airplane and the Lord speaks to me and he says to me, Franz, do you know somebody who's not a Christian? Now, by nature of what I do and Regents of Christian University, no. You know, I go to church, go to school, I go home. That's about it. And to my consternation, the Lord says to me, he's like, Franz, you need to go play rugby. Now, I'm not a very big person. I am incredibly averse to pain, all forms of it. And so it is not with joy in my heart that I agree to this. And I go on Facebook and I say, oh, look, there's a rugby club in Virginia Beach. Who'd have thought? And so I go there because the Lord told me to go. And the roughest bunch of people that you have ever met in your whole life. I have not heard such colorful language in decades. And I inserted myself into their lives, and I'm at training, and I'm playing rugby, and my first game is in the middle of August, which is the middle of our summer. On the heat index, it's like 45 degrees Celsius, and we're running around at 1 p.m. in the sun. Absolutely miserable. And I'm doing this, and, and even in my mind, you know, you think, oh, yes, well, you know, the Lord has sent me. He's told me to go to play rugby, so obviously I am going to be the star. <laughs> he will give me hind feet on hind places. I am just going to be so amazing, and because of my amazingness, everybody's just going to be like, wow, if we can be this amazing, we want Jesus too. But unfortunately, this is not how it turned out. Do you know what award I won at the end of the season? I won the Man of Glass Award for the most injuries. There was not a day which I did not come home from a game or from a practice in which I did not have a new injury. Rolled my ankles almost every week. The shoulder is still no good. Had a concussion. Just pain. Pain, just pain all the time. Everything was hurting all the time. Running sprints for fitness in the middle of February when it's minus four, minus five outside. Just pain. But a commitment to a relationship with people who were there. And so I inserted myself into the coach's life and into his family. And when they invited us, we went. And whatever opportunity we had, we were talking. We were talking about rugby. And I took an interest in American sports. And, and we were just inserting ourselves into our lives. But can I tell you the conflict that it created in my marriage? Because every time I come home with a new injury, my wife asks me, what are you doing? And I said to her, you know the Lord told me to go here. That's why I'm there. In my two years at the rugby club, I did not share the gospel with anyone once. Because my job's not to preach, it's to love. And I inserted myself into the lives of the family, of the families there. And we're about a year in. And my coach's wife is in the shower and God speaks to her. And our life has changed. And three months later, Dave sends me a message. He's like, Franz, we need to talk. And we go for lunch. And he looks me in the eye and he says this to me. For the longest time, I've been running away from God. But now I can no longer deny that he's real. And you look at this family now and you would not even recognize them. There's life in their eyes, there's life in their family, and there's life in all of the communities that they find themselves in. All because I was willing to be run over by very big people all of the time.
So the question, if suffering is good news, which it is, at least for our transformation, it's the means of the kingdom being brought on earth, right? We enter the kingdom through suffering. It is through our self-giving that God's kingdom manifests itself in this world. Why do we gravitate away from it? Why do we constantly choose the easy way? Why do we constantly look for something else? And it's not just because it makes us uncomfortable or because it generates unfavorable circumstances or because we really like the sun to shine. It's because our identities are inherently secular. I'm going to unpack what secular means. Our identities are inherently secular. Henry Nouwen, in The Way of the Heart, he says, Why do we children of light so easily become conspirators with darkness? The answer is quite simple. Our identity, our sense of self is at stake. Secularity is a way of being dependent on the responses of our milieu, of our surroundings. The secular or the false self is the self which is fabricated, as Thomas Merton says, by social compulsions. Compulsive is indeed the best adjective for the false self. It points to the need for ongoing and increasing affirmation, whether I'm a pianist, a businessman, or a minister. What matters is how I am perceived by my world. If being busy is a good thing, then I must be busy. If having money is a sign of real freedom, then I must claim my money. If knowing many people proves my importance, then I need to make the necessary contacts. This compulsion manifests itself in the lurking fear of failing, the steady urge to prevent this by gathering more of the same, more work, more money, more friends. To be secular is to be dependent on the responses of our surroundings. And deep within ourselves, we find our, our identities fractured. And so we find ourselves dependent on the responses of those around us. And so we desire to show everyone that we matter. I'm good enough. Jesus is with me. I'm successful. And so we endeavor to accomplish ever greater feats. We have to grow. We have to be better today than we were yesterday. I have to be more mature this week than I was last week. As we give wonderful Christian language to an inherently secular conception of the self. The minister has a desire to show his congregation that he made a difference. I matter here. And so we're constantly looking for things to do, some sort of deliverable that I can show to those around me. I'm not just sitting around and doing nothing. Look, I've accomplished something. There is a need to prove to everyone that their opinions about you are wrong. And you're not as big a loser as they said you would be. And they sit deep, deep within our souls. And it is our responsiveness to those social compulsions which when somebody threatens my money, that which I use to show everyone that I'm successful, that I'm unwilling to embrace it. That when the Lord asks me to give up that job which I use to show everyone else that I matter, no thank you. This is who I am. And this is why our primary problem this will kind of blend in section two and section three of the sermon. Our primary problem is a love problem. The church worldwide is struggling because we are struggling to love. Not struggling to preach, not struggling to have services or small groups. Or, we're not loving. 
Because to truly love God and our neighbor forces us to let go of those things which we rely on to bolster our identities before God and before others. A truly loving action does nothing for my false self. Nobody sees whether I love my children or not. It does nothing for me to love them. And we'll have very little to show for true loving actions in our families. Because in fact, loving your family may in fact cost you a promotion because you chose time with them rather than attending that meeting. There's no short-term gain in suffering. But the reality is, is that if we as a people, this church, is not known as a people that love... Paul says we have nothing. First Corinthians, Paul says you can give your body to be burnt. Have all knowledge. Speak in tongues of angels. Have all revelations. Sacrifice, sacrifice, sacrifice. Do the right thing. But if that emerges from a place just to bolster a false identity, because remember now we've given spiritual language to a secular compulsion. So I'll give my body to be burnt for Jesus. And then what do I do? I say, look at the sacrifice I made for Jesus. And now that becomes my false self. And I start parading that to everyone in church. But deep down, my response is still secular. And we see this in ministry all the time. So now if God tells the minister to sit down, he can't sit down. Because his self is bound up in his ministry, in the sacrifices that he's brought to God. It's like, look, I've given my life for you. And that becomes his identity. And God's like, I don't know that person. Go home, find the real you, and come back. Dallas Willard says that what you do does not matter. It is who you become that matters. Obviously, our actions matter. But we are talking about deep formation. Because to do loving things is different from being a person of love. Because you can sacrifice and grow in resentment and bitterness because you haven't loved. And the reality is that only a sacrifice grounded in love has the potential to transform. Everything else is charading. And everything else will just cause resentment in your heart. Because if you suffer, because it's the right thing to do and that's what God expects from you, it'll bear very little fruit. If you're like, I'm going to embrace suffering, Franz said, we have to suffer. And tomorrow you're like, I did the most suffering this week. And you walk around, you look, look, I gave all of my possessions away. Look, I'm moving to India. But you haven't loved. There hasn't been an impartation of the love of the Father in your heart which has moved you to lay down your life for those around you. You may do that five, ten years, but eventually it will reap only destruction. You can so easily let your willingness to count the cost become your badge of honor. Look, I'm counting the cost. This is what God demands. God is not interested in your 10% that you tithe. He's not interested in the sacrifices that you can bring him. God is interested in you. But for us to bring that real me to the Father, I have to get behind all of the false selves that I've built over the years. And we build them for various reasons. But the reality is, is until we get behind to that person, there can be no life in the long term. Because the false self will continue to pop up. And there will continue to be places where you do not allow God to go and you don't allow people to touch.
your sacrifice is not motivated by the love of God for others, will bear no fruit because your heart is motivated by God as the great accountant. God is just sitting up there. He's got his little ledger and he's like, okay, dear, bien, well, yeah, yeah, doing good this week, doing good this week, oh, not so good here. And, and then we get to the end of the week and then God's balancing the books. And we start to perceive God as primarily interested in what we do. We start to perceive God as primarily utilitarian. God created me to teach. Oh. Teaching may be the function that I fulfill in order to love people, but I am not a teacher. Teaching is not even what I do. I am created in the image of God to know him and to be known by him, and that's it. Everything else is propaganda. Nothing else matters. And so I stand here today. If I never teach again, couldn't be bothered. It wasn't always like that. For the longest time, for the longest time, I had such a difficulty because I had this false self, this false sense of identity which said that my only utility in the kingdom is that which God has called me to do. And he really called me to do it. But I started to use the, call, the calling to build a false self, to hide from God and from others. I am the teacher. Come to me, I'll solve all your problems. And so I start relating to other people and to God on the virtue of that. So what happens if I get something wrong? Disaster. Shame. And so this unbearable shame keeps growing because you know you're supposed to be better now than you were last week, but you're just not. Somehow, 10 years down the line, I'm worse than I was 10 years ago. Somehow, the more I knew what to do, the less I was able to do it. Because in my mind, in my heart, God is the accountant, and all he cares about is whether I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. God is interested in us. There needs to be a relational engagement with the Father. That's what he's after. Fear-driven rules. Just tell us what to do and we'll do it. Just give us the rules and we'll follow them. We need to give 10%, we'll give 10%. And we'll use the other 90% to do whatever we want. It's like tipping God. <laughs> I know you gave me 100,000, but yes, 10,000. Now leave me alone. But we do that all the time. Oh, I'll give 20%. 20%, there you go. But have our hearts been gripped by the love of God? So that we can move by compassion where it says, God, if you want all of this money, you can have all of it. And this is not something that I can give you. I'm not standing here and being like, I have the answers. I don't have the answers. God has to come in and he has to grip your heart. And he has to plow past all of the lies that you put up, that you believe about yourself and about others and about God and is to break through and you have to see a father that loves you, that looks you in the eyes and says, I chose you before you were born and I still choose you. And I will continue to choose you and you will always have a place in my house. love. But if we're only obsessed with self-preservation, loving ourselves, the kingdom of God can never come. And so the church's Achilles heel always, throughout church history, is hypocrisy. Because we preach about the love that God has for the world, but we are not willing to extend it. Because it costs too much. It's too difficult. 
in 1 Corinthians 6, Paul speaks to the Corinthians and he says to them, it's like you're taking each other to, the, to court, you're doing this, why are you seeing each other before ungodly judges? He's like, why not rather be wronged than sue your brother? But the first thing that happens when I experience something uncomfortable, when I experience something wrong, when somebody wrongs me, I'm like, God, where's your justice? The reality is that if I call for justice, I need to realize that that justice will fall on me as well. And am I ready for that? Is my life really that pure that if I call for justice on Diebia, that I'm willing to stand next to him and for the same justice to fall on me? No. And so while we are shouting... Judge them, judge them, judge them. Jesus is, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And we are constantly grasping for things that we believe we're entitled to instead of extending the love that we've received freely from the Father. So we're suing each other, we're fighting with each other, we're gossiping, slandering. And the reality is, is that the gospel has not begun to take effect in your life until you have been wronged. It is once you have been wronged by someone that the opportunity for the gospel to take root in your life and theirs begins. Where you can choose to forgive those who curse you or you can choose to hate them. It is through bearing unjust suffering that Christ is revealed to those around us. It is through blessing others that they, when they wrong you, that the kingdom advances. It is through forgiving the person who stole from you and not demanding repayment that he too can experience the grace of God. So we sing and we preach about the forgiveness and the grace of God, but are we really willing to bear that cost? To be like the priest in Le Miserable, who when the thief comes back, he says, but no, he left the, he left the good stuff. Let me give you the good stuff. You stole the cheap stuff. Here's the real stuff. The priest grasps something about the grace of God. You were stealing from me, but I'll bless you. Give it to you, it's fine. Not to steal from me one thing, I'll give you two. Because it's that grace, it's that forgiveness, it's that abundance of God that's different than the world. When we're balancing the books, we forgive but we remember. I'll forgive you but never speak to me again. Somebody steals from you in a business deal, you're like, I forgive you, but we're never doing business again. That's not forgiveness. When I come to God, he doesn't say to me, oh, France, I forgive you, but I remember all of this other stuff you did. Ne? Right? <laughs> the reality is, is that you and me are the only representation of the Father that people encounter this week. Who are they going to meet? Who are they going to see? Are they going to go away from that encounter and be like, man, I wish I could be loved like that? Or are they going to be eh, just another person, kind of like me, nice to those who are nice to them, curses those who curse them, gossips about those who gossip about them? So Ben Sixsmith writes an article in the New York Times a couple of years ago. And the article is called The Sad Irony of Celebrity Pastors. Celebrity Christians. And so he says we can see, fill in the blank, with a twist of Christianity trend elsewhere. On the one hand, we see right-wing, business-oriented evangelicals who offer capitalist self-enrichment and hubristic jingoism with a twist of Christianity. 
Jesus wants you to prosper. On the other hand, there are progressive Christians who promote the usual left-wing causes with a twist of Christianity. While different in belief, such people share patterns of thought. The former believe secular individualists mysteriously share God's wishes that what should be done with money, while the latter think that secular progressives mysteriously share God's wishes for what would she done, should be done with our bodies. So if Christianity is such an inessential add-on, why become a Christian? I'm not religious, so it's not my place to dictate to Christians what they should and should not believe. Still, if someone has a faith worth following, I feel that their belief should make me feel uncomfortable for not doing so. If they share 90% of my lifestyle and values, then there is nothing especially inspiring about them. Instead of making me want to become more like them, it looks very much as if they want to be more like me. It's not a Christian. Secular guy running for the New York Times. It looks very much as if they want to be more like me. We have a love problem. We haven't learned to love the way that God loves. It is not preaching. It's not hipster clothing. It's not events. It's not releasing the newest album or the newest book or the newest this or being on Oprah. That's not going to change anybody. What's going to change the world is if we learn to love like Jesus and I can learn my love my neighbor the way that Christ does that the kingdom of God can manifest. If I can love my family more than I love my job, Christ can manifest in my family and in my community. Because if you suddenly have to have the uncomfortable conversation with your boss telling him, well, listen, I'm not coming to that meeting because I'm going on a holiday. And if that means that I don't get the job, well, so be it, it's fine. That creates an opportunity for a true gospel conversation to take place. True cost. Really different. Everyone else is, usually we think, we're like, no, 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 family needs to wait. We need to do the right thing because I need to be successful at my job because one day when I'm CEO, then I'm going to make a difference. One day when I'm in politics and the president, then I'm going to make a difference because then I have the power. Henry Nouwen says that we haven't learned to give and to receive love, so we choose power and control instead. So we want to control everybody. We want to tell everybody what to do. We want to have all the power and the authorities that we can have distance and we can make people submit to us, but we haven't actually learned to love them, so there's no transformation. There's only compliance until we're gone. So Romans 5, D.A.B. mentioned it two weeks ago. I want to end with this text. And this will kind of be our, well, I'm, I'm not ending. About two-thirds of the way there. This is the start of phase three. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance hope, or endurance character, and character produces hope. And this hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. Hope here for Paul is a very unique usage of the word. It's not a hope that has wishful thinking, but it's a hope that we can convey to the world that transformation is possible. That God can come in and take that which is so broken, that which is so ashamed, that which is so selfish, and he can turn it into something which can reflect his character. That is the hope that we hold before those around us. The hope of South Africa does not lie in political means. In church history, whenever the church gains political power, 
and money, everything goes wrong. Because they start using that political power and that money to control people they should be loving. They start using that political power to assert values on people who actually want nothing to do with Jesus. The hope for South Africa lies in Christians learning to love their neighbor as Christ loves them. Learning to extend forgiveness to people who don't deserve it. Learning to suffer wrong so that other people can see what God is really like. I'm going to end with this story and then we can pray. Corrie ten Boom, some of you may know this story. She uh, was a Jew in one of the concentration camps in Germany. And this is after the uh, Second World War is over. And Corrie is preaching in a church in Munich. And she's preaching in this church. And in the back of the church, Well, she was pre- this, is, this is actually hilarious. She was preaching a sermon about the forgiveness of God. And she says this, And that's when I saw him working his way forward against the others. One moment I saw the overcoat and the brown hat, the next a blue uniform and a visored cap, and its skull and crossbones. It came back with a rush, a huge room with its harsh, harsh overhead lights, the pathetic pile of dresses and shoes in the center of the floor, the shame of walking naked past this man. I could see my sister's frail form ahead of me, ribs sharp beneath the parchment of the skin. Betsy, how thin you were. Betsy and I had been arrested for concealing Jews in our home during the Nazi occupation of Holland. This man had been a guard at Ravensbrück concentration camp where we were sent. You mentioned Ravensbrück in your, in your talk, he, he was saying. I was a guard there. No, he did not remember me. I had to do it. I knew that. The message that God forgives as a prior condition that we forgive those who have injured us. But since that time he went on, I've become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things that I did there, but I would like to hear it from your lips as well. Fraulein, his hand came out. Will you forgive me? And I stood there, I whose sins had every day to be forgiven and could not. Betsy had died in that place. Could he erase her slow, terrible death simply for the asking? It could not have been many seconds that he stood there, hand held out, but to me it seemed hours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I ever had to do. For I had to do it. I knew that. The message that God forgives us is a prior condition that we forgive those who have injured us. If you don't forgive men's trespasses, neither will your father forgive yours. And still I stood there with coldness clutching my heart, but forgiveness is not an emotion. I knew that too. Forgiveness is an act of the will, and the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. Jesus, help me. I prayed silently. I can lift my hand, I can do that much, but you supply the feeling. And so woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder. It raced down my arm. It sprang into our joined hands. And then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, I cried with all my heart. For a long moment, we grasped each other's hands, the former God and the former prisoner. I had never known God's love so intensely as I did then. This is the gospel. That is the love that God extends to us. A love that forgives even the most atrocious of actions. That is what will heal the nations. Judgment will do nothing. Love and forgiveness will heal our wounds. It will heal our societal wounds. The hatred that people
people have towards one another is healed when we learn to love like God does, when we learn to forgive like God does, and when we are willing to be injured so that that love and forgiveness can go to the nations. Let's pray together. to extend an invitation today. As I mentioned, I cannot give you what you need. Only God can. And so if you are here today and your desire is to encounter the love of God, So that at your very being, at the core of your soul, when you are squeezed, love pours out to those around you. I would like you to come forward just as an act of desire to the Father. Just come. Come and meet with a God who looks at you with a love. Make some space here on the left.